Hey there, my lovers. How the heck are you? Welcome to the Holy Shed. And I do hope that you are well and flourishing wherever you are. Now, this week, I am jumping in on a very important subject, LGBTQ plus issues and the Bible, which I know affects, well, a hell of a lot of people. And I promised a while back to say something about it because, well, you know, I have been thinking pretty serious about this subject for a long time now. You know, sometimes I do pause for thought on Radio 2 and by far the most comments, messages and correspondence I've ever had after doing a pause for thought came from my brief reflection pauses are only just very brief reflections a couple of minutes where I talked about being a parent to a gay daughter I mean it's common knowledge to folk like you that our youngest Lizzie is a lesbian but talking about it on the radio as a vicar seemed to stir up an awful lot of interest I remember when Lizzie came out you know back in the 1990s she came around for dinner clearly wanting to say something significant to us uh, but she took all evening to get round to it and when she did it was no surprise uh, no surprise to us even though we'd never really thought about it but it actually made sense of an enormous amount of things that we saw about her and that we'd seen in her life over the years what saddened me you know was how many listeners to pause for thought who contacted me uh, weren't just gay people themselves but were parents of LGBT children who spoke of the stigma that they themselves experienced because of it even in this day and age and you know I'm well aware of that I've had people parents uh, of gay children in the church talking to me about that for years but what shocked me here was that these weren't necessarily church people they were just folk who were listening to radio too and it and it just occurred to me that probably as a society we're still not actually as far forward on this subject as sometimes people like me think that we are but the fact is it's really time that we all grew up a bit, isn't it, about these kind of things, especially in the church, but, you know, generally. Uh, but sadly, it's still not the case. Um, there's a, a woman called Hannah Barraclough, a Church of England priest, uh, tweeted this week, uh, which I noticed, with an anonymous letter that she had received, which um, she put it publicly, so I'm sure she won't mind me doing so here. And um, this is what it says, if I can read it. Ms. Baraclough, I'm not going to call you by your Rev title because, in my opinion, as a Christian, you are a disgrace to God and many Christians, flaunting your homosexuality when, as you must know, the scripture calls you people, you people, an abomination. How you have the blasphemous audacity to hold up a placard saying God made us fabulous. You are an abomination to my God. Read the scriptures relevant to yourself and all the others. God did not make you fabulous. He made you in the image, uh, in God's image, which was perfect and sinless. So, Ms. Baraclough, I suggest uh, for your own sake, you repent to God for your uh, blatant hypocrisy before my Lord comes back 
because that is important and you and your like will have to answer to him for the offence you are giving him. From a born again, <laughs> from a born again Christian saved by his grace. Gosh, I don't know what happened to the grace in the process there, but um, there you go. Astonishing, isn't it? And astonishing that that's, you know, how it is in this day and age. And I think that Hannah's not alone in, you know, receiving that kind of correspondence. I know many vicars and church ministers in other parts of the church who've suffered horrendous abuse um, in many forms about the sexuality in the name of God, you know, uh, and without the slightest effort to recognise or understand who these people are as people in themselves. Um, it, it's just utterly shocking. People have been driven out of their jobs, out of their, you know, vicarages and homes and churches and I, I detest it. I really do. So what I want us to do first of all, as I just calm down a moment, is light a candle. If you've got a candle, then I invite you to just light it with me now for all our sisters and brothers in the church and beyond who, and in some countries, my God, do people suffer just simply for being who they are. And dear friend, if that's you too, then light a candle for yourself. Let's light a candle of hope and love for our friends and sisters and brothers who suffer just for being who they are. So yes, we're taking a break from all the uh, apocalyptic stuff and the demons and all that which we've been thinking about lately here in the Holy Shed. There's still plenty to say, you know, and we'll come back to it, no doubt, and especially if you have questions or comments that you send to me about that. However, this week, as I say, I want to fulfil a promise to talk a bit about the LGBT issue from a biblical perspective. I'm not going to be reading the Bible uh, out loud, by the way, to you, because that's just not how it is here. But I do assure you, I have one right here. Actually, it's one that was uh, presented to me by John Sentamu, who was then our area bishop, uh, on the occasion of me being ordained priest. So <laughs> uh, it's here in the shed with me, and I read the Bible most days of my life, you know. Um, I don't necessarily, as I say, make a big deal of reading it here in the shed, but, you know, it's a huge part of my life. Now, the thing is, I can't tell you how many LGBT people contact me or speak with me about their struggles with the church. People like Hannah, who I read the letter from earlier on. But, um, but also people who actually struggle with Christianity in general over this issue of sexuality. People who sincerely wish to follow the path of faith, to follow Jesus, but can't possibly deny who they are in themselves. And they sense, or they've been told, that the two things are not compatible. 
But here's the thing, guys. Don't for one minute give up because there are other approaches to faith, other interpretations, other traditions, other paths to explore. Um, but as I say, first, coming back to uh, our daughter Lizzie, I mean, when she told us that she was gay, um, she said, I know you guys are cool about all this stuff and you've got lots of gay friends, but I don't know how you feel about it being one of yours. Well, I was delighted, actually, um, because she was coming out, being true to herself. But jokingly, I mean, honest, jokingly, <laughs> I said, you know, my only problem with this, Liz, is that you've blown my neutrality. And what I meant by that was in discussions and debates and talks that I've given, I've always been able to say, I'm not gay. No one in my family is gay. You know, in other words, I don't have any axe to grind here. But it was a joke because, as I say, in the end, who cares? Um, we love our lesbian daughter and feel blessed to have her in our life and blessed that, you know, coming out transformed her life um, so magnificently. I would say, you know, like any religious conversion I've ever seen, you know, coming out for her changed everything. And I think, you know, people who may be struggling with that issue of coming out, you know, maybe need to hear that. She's been with her now wife for, I don't know, it must be over 20 years now. And uh, and I conducted a blessing of their relationship. You can see us here. I'm the one in the skirt, by the way. <laughs> and, um, and it was wonderful, you know, a, a great occasion. But I can't tell you how frustrated I am that here I am having retired and, you know, we still can't conduct legal same-sex marriages in the good old Church of England. Um, it's deeply frustrating and has caused so much pain and suffering to many people. The fact that, you know, even now I do take weddings of people if they ask me to. And, um, you know, I've taken so many weddings of, of, you know, people in my flock when I was at St. Luke's. But there were other people in my flock, like Lizzie and Andre, people you know, who I couldn't marry. And it was a source of deep pain and heartbreak to me, uh, as I know it was to, to them, to feel that, you know, they'd done something wrong or they, you know, they were made to feel second class in some way. I just hate it all. But here's the thing. If you really want to rile me, I mean, if you really want to rile me, just say, as some people have and still do, that my pro-LGBTQ plus theology is due to having a gay daughter. That is utter bunkum, you know. My theology on this was settled over 30 years ago and probably in my heart before that. And it hasn't changed much over the years other than to deepen and become more confident. Um, having, a, having a Lizzie, you know, in our life has just made it more personal and a lot more joyful but uh, had nothing to do with, you know, the, the theology and the beliefs that I already held at that time and, and continue to hold to this day. Now, the fact is, this year book, The Bible, um, has got very little to say on the subject, very little to say about LGBT issues. Only five passages are ever really cited on the subject. And we'll think about each of them briefly, uh, but uh, first of all, 
I'd like to say what my bottom line, as it were, is on all of this, which is this. I don't believe that the Bible anywhere addresses a situation of co-equal, loving, stable, same-sex relationships. I don't think it ever addresses that subject, which is a subject I'm now very familiar with in this day and age. It doesn't address, actually, a category of person called gay or homosexual. You know, these terms and the concepts behind them are modern coinages, you know, that were not really known, uh, certainly in ancient times and, and not until relatively recently. Ancient Greeks and Romans seem to have assumed that human beings are attracted sexually both to their own and to the opposite sex. They were quite relaxed about that, you know. They could even debate the relative merits of the two forms of, you know, love or, or interaction. I mean, for example, check out the Greek writer Achilles Tatius, uh, who rehearses just that sort of debate. But the idea of someone being exclusively or predominantly attracted to members of the uh, opposite sex, the same sex rather, <laughs> let me say that again, <laughs> the idea of someone being exclusively or predominantly attracted to members of the same sex appears to be unknown in the Greco-Roman world. So bearing that in mind, and it's worth bearing that in mind, what does the Bible say? Well, first, Sodom. Um, that probably doesn't come out right, does it? <laughs> the story of Sodom in Genesis 19. I mean, I think that this is the least helpful, least applicable passage in the Bible, despite being actually very significant in that it's the source of such offensive uh, terminology as sodomy and sodomite. Um, in fact, I think the story in Genesis 19 is one of the most brutal and horrifying stories in the entire canon of Scripture. It's a text of terror, as Phyllis uh, Tribble has called it in one of her books. Uh, the story tells of Lot, Abraham's nephew, giving hospitality to two male strangers. Very Middle Eastern thing to do, to, you know, offer hospitality to anyone who is passing by. They were difficult times in a difficult climate. But when the locals uh, in Sodom heard about the strangers, we don't really know for what reason, but it, it says that all of the men of the city came banging on Lot's door and demanded that he hand over these two men with the distinct intention of gang-raping them. Now, you know, whatever this story is about to say, it is not about gay, homosexual, or anything like that. All the men of the city, by any sort of standards, were not gay people. Um, but they came with this intention to gang-rape uh, these, these strangers. And, uh, you know, Lot pleaded with them not to do this and even offered his two daughters as substitutes. Oh, yeah, guys, it's in the Bible. I mean, talk about a text of terror. He even offered his two daughters as substitutes. I mean, clearly, as I say, this was not a homosexual thing. It was about power and domination, the sort of thing that happens 
you know, with heterosexuals in prisons sometimes or in war situations um, where it is an expression of power and domination. Treating a man as a woman is a primitive, brutal and also deeply misogynist act of humiliation. So I ask, how can anyone possibly find uh, even a glimmer of moral guidance or insight in such a wretched, wretched story? A story in which, as I say, it's assumed perfectly okay for Lot to offer his two daughters to be raped as substitutes for his male guests. Um, I would love the narrator in that passage to comment on that. Uh, but it's one of those frustrating bits in the Bible where there is no comment. It's just, it was just assumed that that was an okay thing, you know. I don't see anything at all here that can possibly contribute to a sensible, ethical conversation about LGBT plus issues. Just forget it. Then there's the text in Leviticus in, um, you know, the, 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 the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, where it says men lying with men is something that's punishable by death. And this is a very common one that's, uh, that's quoted by certain people in the church. And it's, it's a passage where it has this word abomination present. Leviticus, it's important to know, was written during the exile to Babylon. That is when, you know, the Israelites had been, you know, conquered by the Babylonians and many, many of them were carried away into exile. And quite a lot of the Hebrew scriptures were written in that experience. Leviticus certainly was. So it was a time when, uh, you know, Israelites were captive in a strange land. And the overwhelming purpose of the book of Leviticus is to lay out and detail a purity code to ensure a distance is kept between Israelite identity and the Gentiles. You know, it's all basically uh, a guard against syncretism, both at an, eth eth at, at a, an ethnic level, but also at a religious level too. Uh, and in this respect, laws that now appear completely balmy in, uh, in the book of Leviticus had actually quite serious relevance at the time uh, within that framework you know everything hinged for those people in that situation the leaders anyway on retaining ethnic and religious purity they didn't want their their nation to be absorbed to be lost to be watered down into the Babylonian uh, population so it was essential that they and their faith were were kind of kept pure and that's what all those purity laws in Leviticus uh, are really all about that's the agenda behind them in a similar fashion to the Greeks and Romans that I mentioned earlier the Babylonians were pretty relaxed about same-sex relations and seemingly incorporated them into their religious rituals uh, the writer of Leviticus was almost certainly the first to label same-sex acts between men as a particularly Gentile sin or form of impurity, condemning it as an abomination. As I say, that's a horrible term which has been used in many churches to torment uh, LGBTQ plus people. But the Hebrew word translated abomination overwhelmingly in the way that it's used throughout the uh, Hebrew scriptures, 
that word um, applies to idolatrous practices of the Gentiles, okay, uh, which has led some biblical scholars to conclude that it isn't really an ethical term at all. It's what you'd call a boundary marker, okay, a pointer to identity, a taboo, all geared to this thing of retaining ethnic purity. The background to that reference there of males sticking with males is almost certainly male temple prostitution. And it's interesting that this abomination of men lying with men tends to be singled out in a hideously selective fashion when reading Leviticus, uh, whilst ignoring the other abominations that are laid out there, like having sex with a menstruating woman. That's right, uh, because women who are having their period were considered to be unclean, and therefore to lie with her, to even lie in the same bed as her, was an abomination. Uh, eating pork or shellfish, trimming beards, mm. uh, you know, weaving different kinds of yarn. Um, I mean, things that we don't really hear an awful lot about in sermons in Bible-believing, gay-bashing churches. Um, but out of all of those, it's this one that's been selected uh, and, and made to be, you know, the important one the rest of them we can forget and say oh that's all just back there in Leviticus but not the issue of you know homosexuality um, so uh, <clears throat> I think that in our world you know there are still things that should distinguish us I think as followers of Jesus from perhaps society round about but these are not about having sex with a woman during her period because she's counted as unclean or eating shellfish or or people of the same sex making love with each other i think we'd be looking much more at um, the unbridled pursuit of of wealth and capital in our world we, we'd be looking at you know stepping back from the destruction of God's creation, um, you know, and, and lots of other things like that. The, these are I real issues in which I think as a follower of Jesus, I think, you know, I, we need to, to stand out. So the other relevant texts in the Bible about this subject are all in the letters by Paul or attributed to Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and in 1 Timothy 1, 10, homosexuality is mentioned in passing within a list of what you could really see as conventional sins. There were sort of conventional sin lists within the kind of Jewish tradition. And, um, you know, Paul in Corinthians and the writer of 1 Timothy sort of incorporated these into what they were saying. The words used here in both of those lists um, that, that are used to describe homosexuals, you know, are problematic they're translated in various ways, uh, and uh, there's reason to think that the words translated by some as homosexual in these verses imply male prostitution. That's not something that can be pressed for certain, but there's, there's good reason to think that that's what they were talking about. But what's far more important, I think, is to remember uh, is that in the society in which Paul lived and operated male prostitution and pederasty were the standard forms of homosexual behavior 
and these were likely to be uppermost in Paul's mind when speaking about the subject. Pederasty, by the way, was uh, a common Greek practice of a sort of temporary pupil-tutor relationship between a teenager and an older man, which mostly involved sexual interaction. Um, you know, this is in a culture where the young male form was exalted as an expression of physical perfection far more than a woman's body. I believe that there is good ground to see in each of the examples that we've looked at so far, both in the Old Testament and the New, uh, there's, there's good grounds to see a background of abuse in these same-sex practices, or at least significantly uh, significant inequality between the parties. So finally, and probably most significantly, we come to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, which is the only place where anything like a theological argument against same-sex practices can be found. That said, the subject is clearly not Paul's real interest or focus in that passage. It's not as if he was sitting down to write a discourse or a thesis on same-sex relations. It's, it's an example that he's using to reinforce an argument that he is making. The letter to the Romans is a complex text with, you know, with brilliant rhetorical arguments, which I can't possibly get into now. Um, you know, I, I could do on some other occasion. But we need a, a few words to be said to give context to these kind of tricky lines of Paul about what he calls degrading passions uh, and women and men exchanging natural intercourse for unnatural. The church in Rome you know, wasn't founded by Paul, uh, nor had he so far, when he wrote the letter, visited it. it. It was a church which clearly contained a mixture of both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. And in Rome, as indeed elsewhere across the church as it was coming into being in that time, there was one outstanding issue above all else that created trouble and conflict, which was the issue of how unclean Gentiles and Jews deeply concerned with purity could coexist in one community. And Paul, of course, was a significant and controversial figure in all of this because of his stance about the inclusion of uncircumcised Gentiles in a church which was overwhelmingly, you know, predominantly uh, Jewish in nature. So he begins in Romans 1 by cleverly mollifying the Jewish part of the congregation. He'll get to them a little bit later, it'll be their turn next. But he, he begins by mollifying the Jewish part of the congregation by lambasting Gentile idolatry, which is the real focus of his opening argument in Romans uh, 1. He insists that all people could deduce knowledge of God from observing creation but gentiles he says you know in a manner that i don't you know don't really like but um he says gentiles chose to reject this turning instead to idol worship and because of this paul says god abandoned them to their lusts and dishonorable passions of which he gives the example of people exchanging heterosexual intercourse 
for homosexual. But he also actually, you know, and again, there's some selectiveness here. He also includes other examples uh, of this in things like envy and gossiping and boastfulness, as well as murder and rape and goodness knows what else. He cites homosexuality because basically it's an easy target. Remember, Jews saw this same-sex relations, sexual relations, as a particular form of Gentile impurity linked to their um, idolatrous practices and rituals. And Paul doubtless bought into that argument. You know, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, but he never calls same-sex behavior a sin in this passage, but rather he describes it as a consequence of sin, a consequence of the sin of idolatry. You know, he says, because of this, God abandoned them to degrading passions. But the thing is, his example, I think, is flawed from a 21st century perspective in that he follows the Greco-Roman assumption of the day that same-sex relations are a free and willful choice on the part of naturally heterosexual women and men. They're leaving that which is natural to do this. That's his assumption. From Paul's perspective, it meant going against nature. But as I've already said, there was no real category of an inherently or natural homosexual person at the time. You know, someone exclusively or predominantly attracted to members of the same sex, which we now know is a wrong assumption, right? LGBTQ plus people overwhelmingly say that from a very early age, their natural sexual inclination was not heterosexual. You know, I've got a friend who, who talks rather humorously about that, about just as a little boy watching Tarzan on the TV and having absolutely no interest in Jane whatsoever. But, you know, you hear something like this over and over and over again, that people can't really... They can identify a time when they felt great shame about those feelings, but actually the, the natural inclination was embedded there, you know, right back at the very beginning of their experience of life. And incidentally, apart from extreme fundamentalists, I mean, does anyone now adhere to Paul's similar appeal to nature, which he makes in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him. Nothing degrading about me, folks. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. You know, it's exactly the same argument that he's using. He says, nature teaches you this. Well, clearly, nature, as he's using it there, and also in Romans, is a relativized comment. It's to do with certain cultures and certain assumptions, rather than to do with nature in a biological sense. So it's these two points. First, that the object of Paul's condemnation was the model of same-sex practice in Hellenistic society, namely prostitution or pederasty, and second, that neither Paul nor his Jewish forebears considered the possibility of naturally oriented homosexual people. Um, 
that make it quite appropriate uh, and unjust for us to use these texts against LGBT people today. So just one other point. As we know, Jesus never mentions homosexuality, never spoke of it uh, in any reported speech that he gave, which I, as a primarily uh, follower of Jesus, you know, take to be pretty significant, really. So, so I come back to the, the bottom line I said at the beginning, having gone through all of the passages which are ever cited on the subject, I think they're all quite muddy texts for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I, I, I think they all have a background, which means that none of them refer to the kind of uh, natural same-sex inclinations relationships that we understand today. Now, if these things, things I'm talking about, uh, affect you directly, I encourage you to be confident in who you are, to know that you are beloved of God. Trust that voice within you which says, you are my child, I am well pleased with you. Because you know what? That voice is in there, even if at times it gets drowned out by false voices of guilt and condemnation using uh, mistakenly, I think, and sometimes perversely, the words of Scripture. You're not a mistake, folks. You are as God intends you to be. So we've scratched the surface of the subject today and by all means come back to me with questions and I, I can, you know, I can revisit these things. If you do have any questions, do let me know. But there's also loads of material out there in the form of books, etc. Including this, by the way, this book written by uh, a regular shedster, Susan Jones, a retired minister in New Zealand. Um, a while back, I told you about her first book. This is this is book two in a series. I, I told you about her first book, um, um, which was all about you know a story of someone struggling with uh, to make sense of their faith when it was kind of falling apart, and and the conversation uh, is is placed into the context of a cafe sitting over a cup of, of coffee and talking. Well, number two here is uh, following the same format it's you know a non-fiction novel is how Susan describes it in which she converses over a cup of coffee with a woman called Charity um, who she helps to see that there are different approaches to LGBT issues than what Charity has so far experienced in her local church. It's a great read it's very it's very kind of intriguing the way it's been contrived and and communicated and if you're struggling with these issues I recommend this definitely to you it also has got an amazing amount of resources at the back in some very helpful appendixes is that appendixes or appendix appendix I I don't know but um, yeah lots of helpful stuff there so I recommend that book you can find it on Amazon and just an another book which um, is specifically dealing with same-sex marriage but is is this little book which has been around for a while now but it, it, it came out in a new version by Geoffrey John. Geoffrey John you may remember he's, he's a Church of England priest, Dean of St Albans, he was going to be appointed as the Bishop of Oxford and in the end 
that was overturned through a movement of, I would say, prejudice and homophobia against him. Geoffrey John is a wonderful man and a, and a great biblical scholar too. And this little book, Permanent, Faithful and Stable, Christian Same-Sex Marriage, covers some of the things that I've talked about, but a, a lot of other issues as well. So, uh, yeah, I recommend that to you. Okay, so let's let's have a prayer. Multicoloured God, all races and cultures reflect your image. In your likeness, rainbow communities smile and swell with heavenly pride, radiating your joy and freedom. All creation revels in God's kaleidoscopic glory, dancing on the grave of bland uniformity. Oh, may your bountiful heart flood and overwhelm our world of fear and anxiety, that we may discover your presence in every face, however different from our own, in every shape, size and colour of your variegated world filled with splendour. May the song of all creation fill our very souls, ringing out the good news, God is all and in all. Amen. Okay then, guys, uh, I, you know, let's drink to this. If you've got a glass handy, I invite you to pour a little drop now. I should say there was quite a lot of water in the bottom of that glass, <laughs> just in case you think. So it's a toast, a toast to God's rainbow world, a world of infinite diversity on every level. A toast to God's rainbow people. A toast to you, dear friend, as part of that rainbow community, part of that great diversity. Treasure your uniqueness and drink to it now. To life. Lachaim. Very, very good. Well, if you like the Holy Shed, you like what I'm doing, you can support us by buying us a coffee uh, or whatever... You can use this coffee site. Um, it's very easy to do. You just follow the link that's on your screen now. It's also always at the top of the post on the Holy Shed Facebook page. And um, yeah, thanks a million for all of you who support the Holy Shed and, and help to keep it going through buying us coffees and lots of other things too. Here's a blessing. The blessing of God. The eternal goodwill of God the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God, be among us and between us now and always. Amen. So there we are. Thanks for being here with me. And as I've said already, if you have questions, comments, please send them to me and uh, I'd be happy to respond to any queries that you have about the things that we have been discussing and uh, that's just about it. I'm going to play us out with a video which I think I used somewhere back in the midst of the pandemic. You know, when, you know, we were passing through a pretty dark night, weren't we? And um, there were those people who put posts up on the internet that just sent a shaft of light through to us. And uh, this is a song by Camden Voices, lovely choir in Camden in North London. The song is uh, 
Here Comes the Sun, Beatles song, of course, and uh, it came to mind really because I did stay up quite late last night watching Paul McCartney on the main stage and, um, yeah, delighting and wondering at how an 80-year-old man can look so good and perform so well. So thanks for being here, folks. Uh, Have a great week. Be kind to people around you. Be kind to the world. Be kind to yourselves. Stay human. And I'll see you soon. Enjoy this. Here comes the sun. Thank you.